Could Brazil's next president be more environmentally conscious? And which oil and gas fields are the most carbon intense in the world? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a science writer. Today is Monday, June 27th. Let's jump right into the news you need to start your day. Let's start with some extreme weather events. New Zealand is seeing its largest sea sponge bleaching event on record due to extreme ocean temperatures. Last month, scientists observed sea sponge bleaching along the country's southern coast for the first time. It's drastically escalated. Like with coral, bleaching doesn't mean the sponges are dead, but that the algae it has a symbiotic relationship with has been expelled. This means the sponges are more at risk of starving or catching a disease. Not all species die from bleaching, but many do. New Zealand saw its longest and hottest heat wave since measurements began in 1981 recently. In Europe, Italy's drought is just getting worse and many cities have declared a state of emergency because of it, looking to free up funds to deal with their water crises. Hot temperatures, which have reached around 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius recently, aren't letting up anytime soon. Agricultural yield is expected to plunge this year. Italy's largest river, Po, is experiencing its worst drought in 70 years, and it satiates about a third of the country's agricultural production. In the U.S. on Wednesday, the U.S. southwest reached 100 to 106 degrees Fahrenheit, or 37.7 to 41 degrees Celsius, on Wednesday and Thursday. More than a dozen cities hit new records for this time of year, like Memphis, Tennessee, that hit 102 degrees Fahrenheit or 38.9 degrees Celsius, and Macon, Georgia, that hit 105 degrees Fahrenheit or 40.6 degrees Celsius. Keep in mind, it's quite humid in those areas, which makes the heat more deadly. This heat is part of a larger heat wave that has stayed in the lower 48 states over the past two weeks. It looks like the heat wave finally began loosening up this weekend, though. Speaking of this heat, there's a new product on the market called the Climate Shift Index, created by the nonprofit research and journalism organization Climate Central. It indicates in real time how much climate changes alter the frequency of daily temperatures in a particular location anywhere in the continental U.S. It provides interactive maps and three-day forecasts to help the public visualize how climate change is impacting the world around them. In other news, Lake Mead, which provides water to California, Arizona, Nevada, and parts of Mexico, hit a new record low last week. It's the lowest it's been since the lake was first filled in the 1930s and is now only 150 feet away from hitting dead pool level, which is when the reservoir is so low that water cannot flow downstream from the dam. Granted, this is unlikely to happen this year, but if these dry conditions sustain for several years, it could definitely happen. And Alaska has hit a new wildfire record for June thanks to particularly hot, dry weather. More than 1 million acres, or over 400,000 hectares, have burned, which is the earliest date on record that the state has reached this milestone. More than 300 fires have raged in the past few weeks, and more than 100 of them are still burning. The largest is the East Fork Fire, which has burned over 165,000 acres, or around 67,000 hectares, making it the fifth largest tundra fire in the state's history. It has forced some indigenous people off their land, particularly people with respiratory issues. 
There's been 2.5 times more acres burned between 2001 and 2020 in the Alaskan tundra than were burned during the previous two decades, according to the International Arctic Research Center. And this is mainly due to climate change drying out and heating up the area. Unfortunately, more extreme heat is expected this week. Now for a climate study. The journal Science just published a special edition called Our Climate Future, which contains articles diving into different aspects of climate mitigation and adaptation. It starts with a statement by several scientists called Time to Act, which lays out that it has simply been politics and finance that have kept humanity from solving this problem, not a lack of technologies or studies. Some of the articles in this edition include, Can Biofuels Really Fly?, how trade policy can support the climate agenda, and climate change and the urgency to transition food systems. All right, let's hear some climate victories. Brazil's former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who was in office from 2003 to 2010, is running for president against the current one, Jair Bolsonaro. Specifically, Lula, a leftist, is running on a platform of reducing deforestation and poverty. He already has a 16-point lead over Bolsonaro ahead of the October 2nd election. Lula wants to reach net zero deforestation by the end of his four-year term if elected, which means he plans to fight illegal deforestation and restore degraded areas. This would likely produce a ton of jobs. However, old-growth trees take up way more CO2 from the atmosphere, are more fire-resilient, and are the backbone of forests. So replanting trees is not a fair trade for continuing deforestation, which is what he means by net zero deforestation. It's not yet obvious if Lula understands or plans to recognize this distinction formally, and this could mean the difference between decent policy and great policy. Either way, his plans are very likely to be better than Bolsonaro, who has continuously slashed environmental protection in favor of big agriculture. Over in the U.S., Rhode Island's making headway on its clean energy policy. Its House and Senate recently approved far-reaching climate legislation that, if approved, would require the state's utilities to buy enough renewable energy to offset their electricity generated by gas and petroleum by 2033. This would be the most ambitious timeline in the country, and the governor is expected to sign the bill into law. Now, this might not be as hard for utility companies as you think, because they can buy clean energy certificates in the regional marketplace called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. It includes most northeast states. Therefore, it can be achieved without all the energy produced in Rhode Island being clean. But this is still a huge win for climate action in the region. It will likely bring down the cost of renewables and create many new jobs. Federally, the Biden administration signed an agreement with 11 East Coast states to accelerate offshore wind development, meeting with representatives in those states on Thursday. Biden has a goal of installing 30 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030. This initiative will add more support to the supply chain, creating a specialized fleet of vehicles to build and service the projects. Virginia was noticeably absent from the negotiations as Governor Youngkin has moved to withdraw the state from all climate action. Meanwhile, Congress is halfway through passing a bill to force all ship ferries to be staffed by American crews and mariners. This bill has already been passed by the House, and the offshore wind industry is lobbying the Senate to exclude them from the bill because there's not enough Americans to fill this field to meet the demand. So if this passes, it could slow the offshore wind production process. So I'll let you know how this goes. And that brings us into the climate fails. 
A first-of-its-kind analysis by the Rocky Mountain Institute found that the world's dirtiest oil and gas fields are located in Russia, Turkmenistan, and Texas. This analysis is unique because it looked at emissions across the entire supply chain, which the researchers found makes a big difference. The most carbon-intensive operations are 10 times more carbon-intensive than the least intensive operations. The findings were compiled into a web tool called Oil Climate Index Plus Gas, or OCI Plus, which ranks 135 global oil and gas producing resources based on 2020 figures. This index makes up about half of the world's oil and gas supplies. The Russian Astrat Hanskoyi oil field has the biggest footprint because of how many methane leaks it has. Methane is 84 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. The southern Caspian Basin in Turkmenistan has the second biggest footprint, mainly due to how carbon intensive their oil production process is. And the Permian Basin in Texas is in third place for the carbon intensity of the oil production process too. The next two most intense processes are in Venezuela and China. And in Canada, the Independent Office of the Preliminary Budget determined the soaring cost of the Trans Mountain Expansion Project will likely result in a negative $600 million for taxpayers. The original price estimate of the project back in 2018 was $7.5 billion, and now it's past $21.4 billion. Because of this, the researchers determined it, quote, no longer continues to be a profitable undertaking. The project, which would bring Alberta's petroleum products to the Pacific coast, runs through indigenous land without permission and would contribute further to fossil fuel use. Let's end with some carbon capture news. The new Tata Chemicals Europe plant in Northwich announced it would capture about 36,000 tons of CO2 a year and turn it into baking soda. I've been thinking about uses like this. Like, why don't we just turn all CO2 into soda water? Anyways, this would be the largest carbon capture and storage plant in the UK. And over time, the company expects the uptake to increase to 40,000 tons of CO2 a year, which is about 11% of the plant's annual emissions. More specifically, the carbon dioxide will be used to make sodium bicarbonate, which will then be used for dialysis machines, pharmaceutical tablets, and yes, baking soda. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign received a $3.5 million grant by the Department of Energy's National Energy Technology Laboratory to try to take CO2 directly out of the atmosphere and store it in concrete. The project, led by the university's Prairie Research Institute, will take place at the U.S. Steel Corps' Gary Works site in Indiana. Direct air capture has been referenced by the International Energy Agency, or IEA, as being a necessary technology for keeping warming below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Concrete, and steel for that matter, are hard to decarbonize sectors because they require high heat, which is more easily supplied by fossil fuels. So technology like direct air capture could be an important way to make up for these emissions until those industries find a way to fully decarbonize. If built, this system, which was developed by Carbon Capture Inc., could be the largest direct air capture system in the world, taking up 5,000 metric tons of CO2 every year, which is a very small amount. It's equivalent to about the annual emissions of 1,080 passenger cars. But this is still progress. And that was your climate news for Monday, June 27th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. 
Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.